Isn't it amazing? As you too put it in that old song, when two hearts beat as one. Now, for those of you in the West Court, that is an old song. Isn't that the dream of our heart? For some of us, it's a shattered dream. Some of us have sacrificed a lot to try and live that dream. For some of us, it's a dream we've been given up on, become cynical about, two hearts beating as one. Several weeks back, <clears throat> Thanksgiving weekend actually, uh, after church Sunday afternoon, LaDonna and I packed up and booted off to Jasper for two nights, um, one and a half days, just to have some two hearts beating as one time and uh, in the great outdoors. It was, it was great. At one point, uh, we were walking on a trail up in the Pyramid Lake area, and we were the only people around, and with the beauty of nature all around us, she just blurted out to me. She said, I so appreciate you. 90% of the time. <laughs> I didn't know what to say. Uh, was this a sort of a... An, positive way of moving into that 10% conversation. <laughs> and then she said, oh, I'm sorry, I don't think it, that came out right. And I said, hey, 90%? I'm feeling pretty good, actually. I'm thinking my batting average has just gone way up. In my school, 86% was an A, <laughs> right? And then she said, I think I'm going to regret saying that. I think there's a way to turn that into a teaching point somehow. <laughs> you see, even at the best of times, the dream of two hearts beating as one is a great goal. We need to work towards it, but we fail each other, right? But what about the bigger dream for which we were created? For my heart and God's heart to beat as one. We were created to live in relationship with God as a reflection of God. And Jesus' one command was a repetition of an old command, the first command, the only command. Love God with all your heart. The God who loved you with an everlasting love with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then out of that, love one another. We're wrapping up our teaching today from the book of Jonah. And I invite you to turn to the book of Jonah, chapter 4. Uh, if you don't have one, it's a great time to quickly download the UVersion uh, Bible uh, onto your smartphone and look at Jonah chapter 4. The book of Jonah is the story of how God works with one man to draw him fully as one with him into his story. But as we've seen, this is not Jonah's story. This is our story. How was the story used in the worship of God's people at their most holy and high celebration of the year? All of the people from the country would come to Jerusalem to the temple for the Day of Atonement, sim similar to what we might think of as Easter. And the story of Jonah was read, and periodically the reader would stop, and the people would say, we are Jonah. This is my story. And it captures very powerfully the essence of our struggle of this intersection of God's story and my story. 
and the struggle to come to terms with the fact that the only way it's going to work is to, is to surrender all in and buy into God's story. To let myself go into the story that's going to win in the end. To let myself be grabbed by and play the role God wants me to play in that story. To come to see and evaluate everything in my life in terms of how God wants to meet me. And even in this situation. And can use me even through this for his story. And why do you think it was that this book was used in the central celebration, the Day of Atonement? about God making it possible for our hearts to once again beat at one with him. I haven't dug into the history of that, but it seems to me it, had, it must have had everything to do with how and why the, the Older Testament people of God, the Jewish nation, was formed. Do you, do you remember that? When, when humanity fell from God, walked away from their relationship with him for which they were created, God immediately made a promise before he pronounced the consequences for Adam and Eve, he made a curse on the serpent. Although we had given into the evil one, he was not going to let us go easily. He would not stop pursuing us no matter how far we walked away. He would provide a way back home. And the first piece of the curse on the evil one was a promise of hope for Adam and Eve. For you and I, you think you've won. You may have won this battle, but you're not going to win the war. I'll be back. You think you have their hearts. I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and her offspring, someone who comes from her womb as a human, is going to give you a mortal blow, even though you seem to cripple him. What's that a reference to? <laughs> what we celebrate at Christmas, right? The coming of that someone, Jesus. And what was the first big major step in God's plan to send his man? Genesis chapter 12, he called one man, Abraham. He told him to pack up, leave his family, all of his wealth, everything he'd accumulated on this earth, and take a journey. Just him and God and his immediate family. Go to a place he would show them. And God's promise to Abraham was that through you, I will start something new. My plan is not just to create a group of people who are into themselves, just me and them. It's to create a group, group of people through whom the entire world will be blessed. A group of people through whom the entire world would come to see and know that there is a God who loves them and wants them back. Right? And how well did this people group do? Well, not so great. <laughs> Their journey was one in which they allowed the other nations to influence them more than they influenced the other nations. And at best, they would get things right with God, but it was always more about themselves than it was about God's mission for them. All of the prophets of God tried to get the people of God back to God and his heart. All of the prophets were sent to God's people, except for one. Jonah is the only prophet who is specifically called by God to leave Israel and go to one of those nations. It happened to be the nation that was becoming the most powerful nation of the world at the time, the one that was threatening to come in and roll over Israel. 
Now, think about that. You might think, even if just out of a sense of self-preservation, you might think that Jonah might have thought, wow, God, you, you want to use me to protect my country and, and preserve your plan? Your people? Wow, didn't see that coming. I'm overwhelmed. I'm humbled. I'm scared to death. But this is brilliant. If it's not by might, nor by power, nor by your spirit, this is inspired. We'll never beat them with horses and chariots and swords and spears, but this just could work. Right? God's plan was not just to protect his people, although it was part of that. It was to use them to push forward his plan to bless the world through him. And this Jonah plan did both of those. He was going to bless the world, which was represented by the dominant power of Assyria at the time, not by making them feel good, but by helping them get back on track from the downhill trajectory they were on. God is calling Jonah to take the lead in his day for fulfilling the plan to which he has called his people, which is the Day of Atonement, which someday make happen. And Jonah drops the ball. I wonder if the main reason why on the Day of Atonement, their central celebration of the year, or the plan of God to bring people back to him that would one day be fulfilled, the main reason they were to read Jonah is to remind themselves that this festival was not just about them. To get right and stay right with God, it was something they were to show and share with the whole world. And when the Day of Atonement happened through Jesus, he very explicitly said, take this good news to everyone like Jonah. And it's so easy to drop the ball. Let's review where we are. We've got to see Jonah 4, where we're coming to today, in light of the story of Jonah through the book. You see, in chapter 1, God gets Jonah's mind. His understanding Jonah has this call from God, and it's very clear to him what this call is. To us who read it, go preach against Nineveh, we think, well, you know what, what does that mean? Jonah got what it meant. I want you to take a message from me to the great city of Nineveh. Preach against it, basically help them see they're on a path that's leading to their destruction. And as we'll see today, Jonah also understands the implications of that. He understands why God wants him to go. There's no mistaking Jonah gets what God wants him to do and why God wants him to do it. God wants Nineveh to be his, and he wants to use Jonah to make it happen. Jonah understands. The problem is Jonah doesn't agree with God, with what God wants. That points to a big we are Jonah piece already, doesn't it? Sometimes we want to talk about all of the parts of God's word we don't understand. But sometimes the reason we want to talk about the parts we don't understand is to deflect attention from the parts we do understand. 
that are very clear. We just don't like it. We don't agree with what it says about ourselves, right? Jonah want, knows what God wants. He just doesn't agree with it, which is a slight problem for Jonah because God has a lot more resources at his disposal than Jonah does. And God comes after Jonah with a storm. And so Jonah talks to the sailors, and as he talks to them, we realize that Jonah knows totally what God is doing. God has his mind. But he basically says, I would rather die than agree with God. And he tells the sailors to throw him overboard. They do. God stills the storm. In the process, these sailors realize the amazing grace of God for them. Incredible. God uses Jonah in spite of himself. It wasn't Nineveh, but it was somebody. And the story could end right there with this little lesson. You better obey God or else. Right? Because if you don't, God will still win. The only loser is you. That, that's a good lesson. But the story's not over. God could have used someone else to go to Nineveh, but this story is not about Nineveh. It's about Jonah. It's about us, the people of God called into the story of God for the mission of God. We are Jonah. God sends storms, and we sometimes throw up our hands and think it's all over. We want it to be all over, but God won't let it be over. Now, we're a little bit different than Jonah, though. We've made some progress since Jonah's day. We are so into ourselves, even spiritually into ourselves, that our prayers are basically demands from God to still the storm for us, right? We won't do anything for him. We can't do anything for him until he takes care of the storm he has sent me. God pursues Jonah with the storm and he protects and provides for Jonah, chapter 2, with a big fish, a whale, or a sea monster, whatever it was. And in chapter 2, it's just Jonah and God in the belly of the beast from the depths of the ocean. And in episode 2, what does God get? God gets Jonah's words. His words of worship. Beautiful, eloquent words. Unbelievably powerful words. Words from the Psalms. God's own words he gave to prompt our hearts to worship. Jonah's prayer in chapter 2 is so powerful and so beautiful and so eloquent and so God-wordish that if we were just to take this chapter on its own, like we might take a particular period of time in a worship service like this on its own, we might evaluate it and say, good, checks all the boxes. We heard and understand God's word. We said and we sang the right words in the right style. It felt so good. And God gets our words. But at the end of this psalm of worship, chapter 2 of Jonah, which seems so authentic, there's this conclusion which should put a question mark in our minds. Chapter 2 ends with the fish whom God had appointed to, to be there for Jonah, to provide and preserve Jonah, provide for and to preserve Jonah. This fish was also appointed by God to vomit Jonah up onto dry ground. Vomit. That's not a positive word in the biblical story. It's usually an action of judgment or at minimum a statement of displeasure. And we're supposed to wonder, okay, right words, maybe, but is something not yet right? Hey, wait a minute. Jonah hasn't said anything in his psalm about obeying God. Or to put it another way, Jonah's words are good, 
But does God really have Jonah's heart? Is Jonah's heart beating at one with God's heart? In chapter 1, the story could be over, but at the end of chapter 2, we know the story must not be over. God still has something left for Jonah. And sure enough, as we come to chapter 3, God gets Jonah's body, his obedience. Well, outward obedience. We don't know in chapter 3 how much of Jonah God has. Jonah follows through on God's original word because he realizes he has no choice. And amazingly enough, the people of Nineveh turn to God. Go to Nineveh and preach against it. Why? Because I want to judge them? No, because I don't want to have to judge them. Jonah says, nope, no deal. God finds a way to get Jonah to submit to his will, to go to Nineveh and fulfill his mission. Jonah turns, God, or Nineveh turns, and God amazingly turns from what he didn't want to have to do. And once again, at the end of chapter 3, the story could end right there. This time with a happily ever after ending, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Mission accomplished. Yay, God. And this time, yay, Jonah. But the story is not over because this is not just a story about Nineveh. This is a story about Jonah. And Jonah's story is not yet over. And in chapter 4, we discover the real Jonah. Somewhere in here is the book of Jonah. In my Bible, in my office, it's tagged. Let's read chapter 4. And as we read, Ask yourself the question, when does God get Jonah's heart? When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, he relented, did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out, sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose... God provided a scorching east wind. Another wind is pursuing Jonah. And the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But 
God said to Jonah. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, although you didn't tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? That's it, folks. The end of Jonah's story as we know it. A cliffhanger ending. Although there were several places this story could have ended very completely, very naturally, it ends with a cliffhanger. Does God ever get from Jonah what God wants from Jonah? Does God ever get Jonah's heart? We never know. We just don't know. And the reason the book ends this way is because we are Jonah. The purpose of the book is Jonah of Jonah is to make us think, to think deeply. What we don't know about Jonah is supposed to make me ask the question, what about me? Does God really have my heart? Is my heart beating as one with God's heart? We're invited to write our own ending to the book of Jonah. So how's your Jonah story going to end? If we read this chapter well, it helps us get past just a negative Beat myself up, I am Jonah lament. That's not where God wants us. Even though it leaves us with a big question, this, actu- this, this chapter actually points us to how it is we can become who God wanted Jonah and created us to be. And it does that in two ways. And we're just going to explore that for a few minutes, those two ways. Number one, it actually invites us, begs us to th- look into our own hearts honestly. And it points us to God's solution to our we are Jonah hearts issues. So let's look at how God starts by inviting Jonah to look into his own heart. As we, as we watch God and Jonah going at it, look at your own heart. But to Jonah, Nineveh's repentance and God's compassion seemed very wrong, not right, not fair, and he became angry. Literally, the, the literally, it was hot to him. He burned. By the way, does this remind you of something that Jesus talked about? Remember how the story of the prodigal son ends? The one who came back to the love of the father It ends with an elder brother who doesn't get the father's heart. What do you think Jesus was trying to say? We are Jonah, right? Even after God pursues Jonah with a storm, preserves and provides for Jonah with a fish, all of which Jonah does not deserve and he knows it, Jonah is ticked when God doesn't give Nineveh what he thinks they deserve. But still, God's not going to give up on Jonah. But in his anger, Jonah is blinded to what God is doing with him. And in his anger, Jonah is empowered 
to take God on. Funny how anger does that, right? My brother-in-law always says, in anger we make the greatest speech we will always regret or should. He prayed to the Lord, verse 2. Isn't this what I said? I told you. This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who, who just does everything he can to not send calamity. Once again, Jonah is quoting God's words that he told Moses on the mountain, that the psalmist repeated words that are central in what he knows about God. Jonah knew all along that his message was not to be a message of judgment. His message was a message of the possibility of mercy instead of judgment. Big difference. That's what ticks him off. God, if you were treating your people fairly, you would deal with those people. Not give grace to those people. And one more time, even after seeing God use him to accomplish his mission, use him to keep Israel from being invaded by a rising superstar, Jonah says, I'm done. Kill me. It's better for me to die than live. And in his anger, he cannot even see how he's indicting himself before God. At this point, some of us might say, wow, Jonah must be depressed. We got pills for that, right? But God still won't let go of Jonah, merciless God that he is. He invites Jonah to look into his heart. And the Lord said, it's a wonderful phrase. I love the way the ESV translates it. It's most literal. Do you do well to be angry? That word, some of our translations, are you right? That word is literally good well or pleasing it's a bit ambiguous pleasing to whom to god do well in whose eyes well well god certainly because we read in the book of james that the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of god it just doesn't happen jonah you're making about it about rights what's right but god is also asking jonah Do you not see what your anger is doing to you? Let's talk, Jonah, about what could be. Let's talk about what was designed to be, what I'm asking you to help me recreate. Jonah, I want your heart to beat with my heart, and the reason we're not beating as one is because your anger is getting in the way. Aren't you tired of being angry? God does not blast Jonah with a rebuke. He's not directly asking Jonah what right he has as a mere mortal to criticize God. He's asking Jonah, Jonah, can we replay that tape in in, in your heart and think a bit? Re-examine? Reassess the situation? Are you sure your spin is accurate? And and, and reflect on what your anger is doing to you, Jonah, Is it really working for you? Is it getting you what you really want? By the way, that's that's true of all of our emotional responses. 
We're, we're taught these days that feelings aren't right, and wrong, right or wrong, they just are. Well, there is a measure of truth to that. It's true. But there comes a point, and it's sooner than we think, when our feelings actually lead us to wrong thinking. Right? Self-centered interpretation of things. And they do not do well for us. But let's talk more about what it is that, that anger does and, and that cluster of emotions around anger that are associated with anger and that come out of anger. Things like resentment. Bitterness. Cynicism. a critical spirit let's talk about what these things are doing to us and through us to our environment well let's not talk about us let's talk about Jonah what, what it does to Jonah okay what does it do to Jonah well number one it was hot to him it, it robs him of his internal peace Right? The peace that could be ours, the peace that could be in our environment, it's not our circumstances that rob us of our, of our peace, it's our anger about our circumstances that rob us of our peace. And almost everything we touch becomes tainted with our anger. Everything, right down to the proverbial family cat. Right? And we have people behind us warning each other, ah, don't go in the garage. Dad's not having a good day. But rather than reassess his anger, Jonah is so hot he just can't stand down. Instead, he justifies his anger. It empowers him. He's on a roll and he's not about to stop now. He actually justifies it by saying, I knew this would happen. And it's like, yeah, Jonah, and that's not a good thing, right? And then anger takes away. Any sense of a, a healthy sense of purpose, a positive sense of God's call. Please take my life. It's better for me to die than to live. Can I paraphrase that only slightly? There's no use for me anymore. No place for me. Folks, that statement is often a sign of anger that has become resentment and cynicism because it's focused on me. Anger distorts our perspective. It makes us to look for and look at the negative. In the days of film photography, like just you know the analog photography with the film that you developed, I heard a speaker once say, "Anger is the dark room. The devil takes us to develop our negatives." That's it. Verse 5, Jonah makes himself a shelter, sets himself on a hill to the east of the city. East of the city, by the way, that's a little clue. Because in the biblical story, ever since humanity walked away from God, the movement eastward is a movement away from God. Hmm, B.C., Albert, oh, no, I won't go there. Um, now remember, the message of God from Nineveh was what? Forty days, Nineveh will be destroyed. In 
Jonah's anger and self-centeredness, Jonah is saying something like this. Nineveh is obviously not serious about repenting. It's going to be short-lived. God's going to see it the way I see it. He's going to come my way, and I want to see it when it all goes up. And so he claims this little perch on a hillside outside of Nineveh to watch. So he can say to God, see, I told you so. Anger makes us do that, to look for and look at the negative, to interpret everything in the most negative way possible, pick at little things and magnify them, and even secretly hope that something is going to fail. Jonah, is it doing you any good to be angry? I'm thinking God is almost at the point of wanting in his best Chris Berman Monday night football voice to get in Jonah's face and say, come on, man, right? Can you not see what your anger is doing to you? Number four, anger makes us interpret life way more self-centeredly than we should. It even misinterprets God's blessings. The Lord provided a leafy plant, made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort, and Jonah is happy about the plant. It's like, finally, God, you're doing something good for me. Jonah is hot. And it's really hot out there in the desert. Jonah, let me give you something to help you cool down. I'm told that in the shade of a large cool plant, it's sometimes 30 degrees cooler in the desert. It's a sign of God's mercy. It's a sign of God's patience. It's a sign of God working with Jonah. You see, it's so easy to misinterpret the things that we think of as blessings. We so easily see them simply as validations, as I love you, God kisses to affirm us. Oh, yeah, they are a sign that God loves us, but they're always a sign of God saying, see, I have a heart for you. Won't you come to my heart? Can you see what your anger, bitterness, cynicism, arrogance, critical spirit is doing to you? Jonah can't, even when God lovingly exposes his hypocrisy, Jonah can't even see his real art issues. And so God shares with Jonah his own heart. One last try to help Jonah's heart beat with his. In chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4, God opens up his heart and says, You have been concerned about this plant, although you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and so many animals? Jonah, don't you want my heart? Sharing with others how they can be included in our circle of love, it could be so much better for you. What is God's heart? If I could summarize what God is saying here about his heart, it's this. My heart is that everyone deserves one more chance to say yes to God. In the words of one of my pastor friends, Everyone deserves one more chance to say yes to God, and we want 
to be the ones who give them that chance. That's what, calls, uh, what God calls us to be and do. Who do you think has lost that chance, no longer deserve that chance? It's not worth the chance. You've given up on them. Folks, our heart, the number one thing we need to be about if we want our hearts to be as one with God's heart is to give ourselves to working as a team, to give everyone a chance to say yes to the God who loves them. And so that leads to the second question, much more briefly. What is God's solution to our we are Jonah hearts issues? Well, the number one thing we need to do, we've sort of talked about already, not stop trying to change our heart or defend our heart or look for ways to deny our heart failure. It's simply to acknowledge before God, I have a heart problem. My heart is hard. My heart is cold. My heart is distorted, loving the wrong things. And say to him, it's not working for me. I need your heart. Several generations after Jonah, another prophet came along. His name was Ezekiel. And to another group of Jonas who just didn't get it, here's how he put it. I will gather, this is from God, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land of your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. You can't change your heart. But you can let God give you a new heart, his heart. And how was it God would do that? Well, it has a lot to do with what happened on another hill overlooking another city by another man sent by God. Jesus, who like Jonah, was sent to not just declare but to be the one who truly and ultimately extends God's heart to a world that's turned their back on God. It's the first day of his final day as he comes to Jerusalem to fulfill his mission. And as the day closes, Luke chapter 19, Jesus, like Jonah, is sitting on this hill overlooking the great city of Jerusalem but unlike Jonah, who was concerned about his own comfort being taken away, Jesus is entering the city to willingly allow all of his comfort to be taken away so that people will see and turn to God's mercy. Unlike Jonah, who is angry that people have turned to God's mercy, Jesus is weeping because he knows that these people will reject God's mercy through him. Jonah is angry that God is compassionate and relents his judgment. Jesus is weeping for people who don't see that he is the one who is coming to bear God's judgment for us. And as he's dying on the cross, one of his final cries, echoing the heart of God in his final statement in Jonah, is, Father, forgive them because they're ignorant about what they're doing. They have no idea. And in his death, he gave up his heart for us so that if we recognize our problem is a heart problem, he will give his heart to us. He will cleanse our hearts from all unrighteousness and give us a heart that beats like his heart. Recognize that. And then number two, actually do a heart exchange with Jesus. Our heart is everything about us. That's what it is in the Bible. We are to recognize that in Jesus' death, he actually 
bought us, bought us with a huge price, and we aren't our own anymore. But even after we do that, we tend to be Jonah running away from God, sometimes running in desperation and self-righteousness back to God, sometimes trying to run for God with part of our being, but in the whole time, we are actually really trying to run God. That's what we do. But we don't have to be like Jonah. We can have hearts that beat with God's heart, hearts that are cleansed from the anger, bitterness, cynicism, coldness, self-orientation that makes us so small. You see, the biggest person is simply one with the biggest heart, God's heart. To truly give God your heart is to continue to allow Him to do an exchange and give you His heart, even in this situation. You know, as we sit here in this worship service, I can't help but wonder how easy it is for us to live in Jonah 2. To use the right words. In the house of God that Jonah said he wanted to go. To use them to be a smoke screen. And not look at our hearts. As I was thinking about this. I thought of an experience we had quite a few years ago now. When when digital photography. Digital SLR photography was just taking off. And one of the things LaDonna shared with her father. Was a love of photography. Um, And and so... uh, I had this good quality SLR camera that she and a friend used um, to to start this little hobby business, mostly weddings and some family photos, and they had more business than they really wanted pretty quickly, and her friend's husband and I said that they discovered that there's a real market for free photography. Uh, but but they solved their problem by increasing the volume. Um, anyway, when, when digital SLRs came along, LaDonna saw the future really quickly, and she bought one. A really good one. She figured out that the real genius in digital photography was not just the ease in taking pictures and seeing them without having to wait to develop them. The real genius was in the editing. And she discovered a new program called Photoshop. And she learned computers by learning Photoshop. She had resisted computers to that point. Her friend asked her to, to take their family pictures. Mom, dad, three teenage sons. Uh, young adult boys who were, well, they were unique, these boys. They were fairly ADD, each one of them. And, and then one calm daughter. They took the pictures, and when LaDonna gave them their CD, her friend was amazed. The first time ever they had family pictures in which everyone's eyes were opened. Everyone had at least very close to a presentable face. And what, what she never did know was how many heads LaDonna had to take out and put into the picture she made up. And so LaDonna's folks were up visiting us one weekend, and, and she was sharing with, uh, with her dad about this digital SLR and, and the wonders of Photoshop, and they'd been at it for a long time, and mom had still not come up from the basement bedroom, and um, she's usually the first one up there. And, uh, and so finally LaDonna said, where's mom? And dad said, well, I guess she's still in the bathroom photoshopping her face. And that's been a family line ever since. <laughs> you see, what it's so easy to do when we know the right words is for us to spend time together with God and simply do Photoshopped worship. 
putting on the right face before God, saying the right words to God, but never becoming one in our hearts with God. I had a conversation with a friend this week who was reading ahead in Jonah and figuring out what I might say about it. And he said to me, you know, what I see is that Jonah is finally getting authentic with God. Is he? He's transparent. He's no longer putting on a mask. But he's not really authentic because to be authentic as God created us was to be one with the heart of God. The best commitment we could make today is no more Photoshop worship. Come, not just express words to God, but come to be filled again with the heart of the God who gave himself to buy our hearts and trade them with his heart. And that is the battle of our hearts. To allow Jesus to transform and change our hearts to make them beat with his heart. Are you winning the battle? Are you letting God win the battle over you? Let's pray. Lord God of mercy, full of compassion, slow to anger, filled